You're listening to Framework, where we dig into the research, planning, and building that goes into bringing products to market. I'm Rob Hayes. And I'm Tom Creighton. And today we're talking with Paul Jarvis, a designer, podcaster, and the author of Company of One. But today we're talking about his role as co-founder of Fathom Analytics, a simple privacy-focused analytics tool. We wanted to talk with Paul for a couple of reasons. First, to understand his experience building a product focus on privacy and good data practices. Second, to find out how he went from the stage most of us get stuck at, registering a domain for a surefire idea, to actually building the product and thriving. Paul, can you give us a short intro to yourself and to Fathom for folks who might not be familiar with it? You're starting with the hard questions. <laughs> um, it's hard to describe what I do because it's, it's a, it feels a little all over the place, but there, it does feel like there is some strategy to it. I started out as a designer and I've since moved into products and right now those products are, as you said, writing books, making software and hosting a few podcasts. And so Fathom started out as an idea where I thought, my goodness, analytics software looks horrible and <laughs> is hard to use. So why not design it better? And I threw a, I threw a mock-up in Photoshop together in about an hour, and then I tweeted about it, and then it got probably 500 or so retweets, and I was like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> I think I might be onto something here. So then we built out an, uh, an open source version, and then we built out a paid version, and just kind of all went from there. And so was this, this was originally an idea that lived in inside your own head. Did, is this purely from a personal need that you started thinking about this? Or was there a trend in the community, in your community, that, that led you to thinking about this in the first place? Yeah, it was definitely an itch of my own that I wanted to scratch. Looking at Google Analytics just made me sad from a UI, <laughs> <laughs> from a UI point of view. And I also didn't like... The fact that you could dig into like demographic information, like gender or income or any of this stuff. And I felt like Google's an advertising company that gives us analytics products for free because they make so much money off of our data. And I was like, this just this doesn't feel right to me. Like there has to be a better solution. I looked at other solutions and they looked so so, but we're also ugly. You can have such a snobby designer. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I judge <laughs> solutions by the way they look as far as software goes. And so, I, yeah, there just wasn't anything. I wanted to use something different and there wasn't anything. And so instead of just continuing to complain about it, I was like, okay, I'm just going to build it instead. So you mentioned right off the bat that you, you just had this idea, built a mock-up and, and just tweeted it out there. Was there a, a tipping point that you reached after, you know, getting a, a number of retweets or, or, you know, faves or what have you, where it was really obvious that, that you were onto something? Yeah, I mean, it just seemed like the that intersection of simplicity and privacy struck a nerve with people. And it just seemed right from the beginning that people were like, hey, this is something that should exist. You've shown us a mock-up of this thing <laughs> it's up to you like get on building it so you you talked about the problem with maybe some of the other solutions out there being just you know how they look how they feel and and that this product is that intersection between a good ux and not being evil with your data <laughs> was that the was that the problem from day one or did it kind of evolve to there as you started you know, working on it a bit more and fleshing out the concept for uh, what became Fathom. No, that was 100% right from the start. It, it's baked into our DNA at this point where our analytics product has to look and work really well and really simply and also never store any personal data or sell that data. Like our business model is so different than Google, right? Like it's a, a business model of being an advertising company is basically selling information because that's what you do. It's not inherently evil, but it can be. Mm -hmm. Whereas our product is a software product. So we charge a price for it and we make our money that way. So there's no incentive for us. It, it wouldn't make any sense for us to sell data because we would go out of business so fast. As soon as anybody would realize <laughs> that that was the case, it, it just wouldn't work. So yeah, our business model has always been, okay, well, why don't we charge a fair price for the thing that we're making and that will keep us sustainable because it will make us profitable. So you've got a lot of irons in the fire just besides Fathom itself. How did you decide that you were actually going to take this on in, in addition to everything else? And going forward from that decision, how do you, you know, balance or prioritize 
working on on one of the things that you've got going on aside from everything else <laughs> that's a tough question to answer <laughs> i mean in the in the beginning when it wasn't making a ton of money it was a side project it was evenings weekends it was just kind of where it fit in. I mean, for all of the businesses that I run and all the products and ideas I have, I basically go by revenue in order to prioritize things, mm. right? Like even when I moved from client services doing design to products, I didn't move fully into products until products were making me more money than the client work that I was doing. Mm. So the same thing happened with Fathom where in the beginning, we weren't making a ton of money. So it was just when we had time, myself and the other co-founder both had other work that was giving us a, a decent enough living where we weren't, it wasn't just we have, this has to work or else we're screwed. It was, it would be awesome if this works. And until this does, we have to prioritize basically the other jobs that we have. Hmm. So it's always kind of been that. And then, yeah, I guess in, in the last year, Fathom has become profitable enough so that we cover all of our expenses and pay ourselves a decent salary each. And so, yeah, we can both focus on it full time and it gets most of our attention. I still, like you said, I still have other irons in the fire, but all of those things are kind of shorter sprints like the podcasts that i host are seasonal so we do a season and then i'm done or the books that i write so i'll spend three or four months writing a book and then be finished for a couple years kind of thing so and even the the i guess the other revenue stream that i have is courses those only open twice a year and i don't i have i have to work on them pretty heavily for short spells and then not work on them again. So Fathom is the thing that carries through 12 months of the year, basically. Does that make it hard to achieve some consistency with Fathom where you are, you do need to, you know, take time away to focus on the courses when they, you know, when their cycles come around or when you need to run one of your podcast series, when you, when you need to uh, put time towards that? Does it make it hard to kind of step away from Fathom or put less time towards it? No, I like it better. I mean, <laughs> I look at people like DHH and Jason Freed who are just based, well, I mean, I guess they're, they're based camp in Hay now, but for the, <laughs> for the longest time, they were singularly focused on base camp. And in theory, in my mind, that feels like, oh, it'd be so nice to do one thing. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> in reality, I don't like doing one thing, right? So I feel like having all these different things just gives me the ability to leave things for a little bit of time and then come back to them with renewed energy and new ideas. Um, same with Jack, my co-founder. Mm -hmm. Like he'll, he just launched a course on serverless Laravel stuff. And that was a good break for him to do that. And then he learned a bunch of stuff that he could bring back to Fathom. Uh, interesting. Yeah. So I think for, for both of us, we really like the fact that it is our primary focus, but it's not our only focus. And if it was, that would probably get boring. We both like to do a lot of different things and it keeps us on our toes and it keeps things interesting. Yeah. And I imagine it all layers in where it's additive to, to Fathom, whether you're learning new skills or developing a broadening your audience. Oh, exactly. And I mean, even like the, the newsletter that I've written for, I guess, about eight years now, weekly, ha just continues to be something that I, I work on maybe a few hours a week, but that pays off in dividends where whenever I have something new like Fathom that comes out, I have an audience who are interested somewhat in the new things that I put out into the world. And that helps get the traction, at least initially. So something you mentioned as a as a part of Fathom from, from day one, even from that initial mock-up, was the focus on privacy and data retention and, and good data practices. Was that something that you saw as a gap? Were there other products working in that space or was it just something that you cared about personally? There were, I, I yes to all of it. <laughs> <laughs> there were definitely some analytics products that did have a lean towards privacy or at least privacy as a marketing tactic, <laughs> I guess <laughs> I'll say. But also I was just, it, this was around the time when people like, I guess the general public were starting to see privacy issues and data breaches come to the forefront. This is mm -hmm. around the time when Cambridge Analytica was starting. I remember the day that we launched uh, V1 of our paid product 
was the day that Mark, and that we didn't even plan it this way, but it was the day that Mark Zuckerberg was testifying in front of American <laughs> Congress about privacy malpractices and malfeasances about Facebook. So it felt like it, it's always been something that had been interesting, but it felt like it reached this cultural zeitgeist around the same time that we were trying to like first get Fathom out there. So it was, it was pretty much a dumb luck because I might have built this anyways, and it might not have had as much fanfare or traction, but it was a wave that was already happening. And I was like, heck yeah, I'm going to ride this. Like, <laughs> this. This is lining up with the things that I care about. And now more mm -hmm. people are caring about them. So yeah, let, let's get, let's get rolling. Is the audience that's really concerned about this or, or that, that prioritizes kind of products, the products they use based on privacy, is that local to your network or, or the people that you, you kind of interact with online that are following your, your channels, your, your blog, or is this, do you find the, that your audience kind of goes beyond that and you're, you're looking, you're attracting customers, users that are just more generally concerned about privacy? Yeah, that's a great question. In the beginning, it was it was primarily my audience as the driver for growth. Mm -hmm. And then that quickly went away only because my audience, once they've heard about something, they're either going to want it or they're not going to want it. So me promoting it all the time does get a little bit of an uptick every time I do that. But not at the same rate of the initial promotion of, hey, I have this new product, you might be interested in it if you're interested in the stuff that I do. So it, it definitely was the catalyst in the beginning for that. But since then, I look at the I look at the signups now, and we've written a system, so funny, we've written a system purely as some Pavlovian thing where if somebody signs up for a free trial and then converts to a paying customer, uh, myself and Jack get an email and we built this system only because yeah. we both like seeing these emails and I'm like, yay, <laughs> a, a couple more came in in the last hour sort of thing. And I look at these email addresses and in the beginning, I recognize most of the people. So I, I interact with my audience a great deal. And now I don't. And we have people, mostly small businesses, but we have people at Fortune 500 companies pioneers of the open web that like I have no contact with these people. It's funny too that probably we have about as many people with Proton email addresses sign up as Gmail addresses. Yeah. And I, I feel like that doesn't happen very often except in this slice of the market that is caring about privacy. And so it's really interesting to me and, and exciting for me to see that this is something that people are, are interested in and they could use a free product like Google Analytics, but they're choosing to pay for it because they know that if they're not paying for a product, then they are the product. And the, the reason why that product is free is because they're being monetized in other ways that they may not be comfortable with. So seeing this shift from people being like, okay, I, I do want to pay for this because I think it's worth it in the long run if I pay for the software and keep that company sustainable and, and really show that, hey, we don't need to sell data to make a profit like, like other businesses. Fathom, we can just charge people a fair price and they get, they get the analytics that they need and it looks nice. So uh, about, about half a year ago, uh, you launched V2 of Fathom. What was the decision you made to, to you know, bump to a new version of the product? Yeah, I mean, soft, software is going to bump. <laughs> but uh, a lot of it was, so in the beginning, I had a different technical co-founder, Danny, and he ended up uh, wanting to move on to something else. And so I figured, and this was, I guess, a year ago in December, and I figured, do I want to keep Fathom going even though it's generating revenue and there's there's a bit of momentum here but like do I do I want to go all the way back to scratch and and start looking for a co-founder and all of that and I was talking to my buddy Jack who I was building another product with who Ghost ended up acquiring before we even launched it and he said well if you're looking for a technical co-founder I can come on board and I'd already worked with him so I figured yeah okay that makes sense and then we just kind of thought we first of all we wanted to transition the code base from go to laravel so part of the v2 bump was a total refactor of every piece of code in the software and at the same time designers are going to design i was like <laughs> 
I've had, we've had this dashboard for a while. We've had a lot of people use it. I think the open source version of it was downloaded over a million times. And so we've been getting feedback for, I guess it was about a year from people about how it was working, what was not working. And I was like, okay, I've learned so much mm -hmm. about an analytics UI that I feel like I can do better. And it wasn't a huge change. It was very incremental as far as the design went, but I still feel like it was a step towards a lot more clarity and a lot more ease of use. And same with the code base. We made it so it was a lot easier for us to maintain. It relied heavily on serverless architecture, so it was fast and auto-scaled around. So there's so many things going on in the background and the front end where we felt like this felt like a version bump. We also introduced a whole bunch of new features like goals and, and all sorts of other things. And we were like, this, this feels too big to just put out a blog post about it. Like mm -hmm. this feels like uh, a version bump. And so that's what we did. <laughs> So it's partially an exercise in branding of like, this is such a significant change that it, it you know, it warrants a version, a, a new version to the name. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even it was even a little bit uh, on the product hunt side where you can't add your product again, unless there's yeah. a huge change. And we were like, V2 is a huge change to V1. <laughs> so we're gonna put it on product. Hunt. I think it got, I, th I think it got to number two. I think actually the three times we put it on product hunt. It's always got to number two on that day. We've never hit, we never hit number one. We're consistent about being number two. <laughs> Did you see any any users or, or potential customers maybe give it a second look when you when you launched a V2? Did it help to maybe get it in front of people's eyes again and, and just give them for them to kind of reconsider or take another pass through the product? Yeah, and I mean we're pretty we well, okay we try to be pretty consistent with marketing being for a marketing to have some sort of cadence, right? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of products um, in, in this space and in software in general really put all their eggs in the basket of, okay, a, a launch is our big marketing push, and like this is when we're going to be on product hunt. This is where Hacker News could pick it up. Like the initial launch is the the full shot of marketing. Mm -hmm. And for us, we've always kind of, and this is, this kind of goes back to the way that I've always approached all the businesses that I've run where marketing is like a slow and steady stream and, and it has a cadence. So we are always trying to, I mean, V2 definitely was a place where people, where people did reconsider and sign up. And we definitely saw the, the month that we launched, which I think was September or October of 2019, that was probably one of our highest months um, up until the last few months where we saw a lot of people signing up for accounts. But we try to keep marketing it all the time. Like we have a podcast, we write lots of blog posts, Jack does talks virtually <laughs> right now. He teaches a course on some of the things that he's learned from building serverless applications on AWS. I write a weekly newsletter that I mentioned Fathom a great deal in. So we, we really approach marketing from a, how can we continually talk to our audience and our potential audience? How can we reach new people all the time outside of these big pushes as well? Because yeah, those big pushes definitely are a blip in the, uh, an upwards blip in the, the trials and the signups and, and all of that. But it needs to keep going even when there aren't, we can't release a feature, a, a new feature bump to like V3, V4, V5 every month. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. we need to keep going with all of these little things as well, which is why we're always trying to make new content, new, yeah, new, new content basically. When you are thinking about those those new features and and you know keeping the iteration going on the product, how much do you look at the the usage patterns or or the types of sites being tracked of your current customers? Uh, you know, for instance, trying to avoid some sort of feature stratification between things that would really appeal to like Fortune five hundred companies versus you know someone tracking a personal website. Yeah, and I mean that's it's difficult, right? Because I mean, we both want to make the software as widely appealing as possible, but we also 
have basically a mandate towards simplicity where we it doesn't like fathom doesn't make sense if it has thousands of pages of reports or requires training and certification like mm -hmm. it, it doesn't make sense as a product if we go that route because then we basically just created a privacy focused google analytics and that's never been our goal so the the way that we kind of approach features is very very like Jack and I both like to debate a great deal and we have some epic debates and one of us always plays devil's advocate for some reason. So if any feature does make it into the pipeline for, okay, this is what we're going to build or this is what we are building, it's been through a very rigorous debate um, about logic. And also we have from pretty much the beginning prioritized features that all customers can use versus features that only a few customers can use. And to be honest, that's why our API has, it's been very heavily requested that we have a public API and that is something that we're working on, but we have had to prioritize other things because an API would be useful for some customers, whereas custom domains to bypass ad blockers or better ways to do goals or, or a faster um, tracking script that's easier to add customizations to. Those are things that all customers can take advantage of. So those are the things that we pushed up the roadmap to urgent as opposed to we're going to get to this um, very soon, but <laughs> it has to. So we all, yeah, we think about that. What feature is going to benefit all customers? And that's the one that goes ahead of what features are only going to benefit some customers. And we do build those, just not as frequently and not as prioritized. In terms of the features that you do, that do end up getting prioritized, you've got a very specific focus on on the simplicity aspect of this product. And maybe not, not, not simple in function, but simple in user experience. Yeah. I, I guess as the product grows and maybe the the different uh, requests from customers come in, how much of a challenge is it to to kind of stick to simplicity while still introducing new more and more functionality into your product? Yeah, I mean it's hard. Yeah, <laughs> uh, is the short answer. How do you manage the hardness of it? Yeah. We iterate internally so much before a product before any customer sees a product. Like even looking at custom domains, we had probably four or five versions of how the flow of custom domains. Yeah, we had so many versions of that. And it just wasn't easy enough or understandable enough instantly to, to launch. So we pushed that back so many times. <laughs> like we had beta testers on version two and we were like, okay, this isn't this isn't working the way we need. We know we can make this better. We know we can make this. And it's funny too, right? And you kind of touched on this as well. It's really difficult to make simple software and it takes so much work on our end, but we see it pay off in spades when it's a company of two and we have enough support that we can manage it currently. And so we look at, okay, if we, if, if we want to launch a feature, we don't just look at, okay, the opportunity of this feature is that so many new people are going to sign on and we're going to get all these new customers and revenue. We think of it, okay, what is the technical debt of this feature of how we're going to build it and how we're going to have to maintain the code? What is the support debt of this feature as in how often and how likely are we going to need to support this to customers? How easy, what's the onboarding debt for this? How quickly are people going to understand how to use this feature when they become a new client? So we kind of consider a multitude of things when we're building everything and it slows us down a lot. Like we'd love to be running at full steam ahead as far as features go. And I mean, Jack and I do this full time now, so we could be pumping out features every day, but we really try to make it so the onus is on us to do the work so our customers don't have to. So then that decreases churn, that decreases customer support, that just makes it easier for us to maintain. And I think as well, the other thing is that we, at, at least up until now, and we have no plans to change this, is our pricing is our pricing. Every feature doesn't increase our pricing as well. So at the moment, we're trying to put more value into the money that people are spending. So our lowest plan is 14 bucks a month. And so every time we launch a new feature, that 14 bucks doesn't go up. But we're going to hit a point where we feel like there is so much value in that price that 
we don't need to, we can work more at that point on refining. So we have things like uptime monitor that's coming, uptime monitoring that's coming, um, and a couple other features um, that are in the that are in the works. And right now we we feel like we are good value, but we just want to add so much more. And I think that we will get to a point where we aren't releasing features as often because we've hit that critical mass of this feels like a ridiculous amount of value for the money that people are spending. And that that point, we can just work on minor changes and refinements and making it more easy to use and, and that sort of thing. But right now, because we're a new company, it's like, we feel like we're pretty valuable for the, the cost of our product, but we think we can be even more valuable mm-hmm. for the cost of the product without increasing that price. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking specifically to, to speed and value, I think you started Fathom with a, with a self-hosted uh, product and then later on moved to the the hosted offering, was that uh, like a conscious decision that you made or did you just want to get something out there to start learning how people were going to use it? Yeah. I mean, in the beginning, we thought that open source could drive and it could be sort of community developed and we would have a product that people would pay to have hosted and maintained and secured and all of that. But the way that it turned out, um, I think it's pretty common with most open source projects outside of things like WordPress or or that where our uh, public repo was super popular like i said it was download it's been downloaded over a million times and that just blows my mind that that (laughs) has happened but it turned like the issues tab on our repo just became uh, an in we just became inundated with with support requests and we didn't see people helping develop it or offering to contribute to the repo Mm. we just saw people needing support and wanting us to help them and that there's no, we couldn't build a business on that. Like I would have loved to, out of like the goodness of my heart, just have it be open source forever and be able to support that somehow. But we also, like, I also know that in order to keep the business going for a long time and we, we don't have an exit plan, like we want to just keep going forever, we need to be profitable and that that will help us be sustainable. And so we have no, we're never going to take the open source version offline. And at some point we're going to do, there's a few small things that we want to update on it, but it can live as is and it works great right now for people that want to fiddle with servers, but we don't want to spend, like we didn't want to split our time between trying to support our paying customers and just dealing with gobs of issues on mm. on the open source repo. So we basically just came, and it was a tough to say, I think Jack and I probably debated it for months about like, what does it look like if we just kind of leave the open source as is and just focus on the paid version? Mm-hmm. And it's hard, like we can't just make the paid version open source either. It's, it's not that easy because our architecture is so built into um, the serverless world and auto scaling and that. It's not like you can just take all of that, dump it on a digital ocean droplet for five bucks and be, okay, this works. Like it just, <laughs> it, it doesn't work that way. And we do want to contribute to the open source community but we need to get to a point where we've taken care of our the sustainability of our business first and the needs of our paying customers first. So we are going to go back and, and look at that. I don't know in what form yet. We may open source some other things. But for now, it just like Fathom V1 open source works great and it will just continue to exist. And if people want a free <laughs> privacy focused version uh, of software that they can fiddle around with on a server, then... Yeah, it's it's still there. Yeah, you, you kind of touched on it earlier, where you can you, you need to prioritize on what generates revenue, and you know, as a person who needs to pay bills, uh, <laughs> almost by necessity. Yeah, and we're not we're not looking for funding. We've actively turned down capital because it, we don't feel like we need that for this business. So because we're bootstrapped, because it's just us working on it, and we're trying to have like uh, a, a decent wage for ourselves, then yeah, that's the focus. That's the priority for us. So you've talked about your your co-founder Jack, or, or sorry, your, your partner Jack on this. How do you guys kind of divide and conquer in a 
in a business of two. Uh, where, where do you overlap? And then what, what's kind of your independent domains? Yeah, we overlap because we're both phenomenal communicators. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, helpful. Sounds stupid to say, but I think a lot of times that is where things break down is the soft skills, the being able to communicate, empathize, criticize without taking things personally on either end. And so Jack and I, I think, are really good at being co-founders with each other because we can we can do those things. So he's a phenomenal backend application programmer and he does that's that's his job at Fathom is that my job is design and content at Fathom and I do a fairly okay job <laughs> at that. And so we both take on communications, both internally and externally, uh, as a partnership where him and I host a podcast together. We both write blog posts. He writes technical nerdy blog posts. I write thought e type pieces, I guess, whatever the, however the <laughs> heck I write on the blog is, is how I write. And so we both, and then we both take support. He does more of the technical support issues. I do more of the biz dev and level one tech support where somebody's just having a problem. Like, I don't know where to embed my script on my Squarespace site, then I'm going to help them with that. And then, yeah, I guess I do all the front end coding as well, but that's not really a, a ton of work because we don't change that very often. But yeah, and then we both kind of work through any of the problems. We hop on the phone at least once a week. We pair program all the time and he'll even pair with me so I can see his screen and he'll walk me through, even though I don't fully understand it because I'm not uh, an application developer, he'll walk me through the logic and see if I can break that logic apart. And same with the design, I'll show him a design, I'll show him a piece of content and I'll be like, where does this fail or how does this fail? And we'll, we'll rip it to shreds together internally. And then once we're happy with the fact that neither of us can poke holes in it, then we're like, okay, this can, this is now a blog post. This is now an interface. This is now a feature sort of thing. Mm -hmm. you, you, you talked about the, the fact that you're both good communicators there. You've got a podcast above board that's focused specifically on, on your work on Fathom. Do you have a podcast because you're good communicators or are you good communicators because you have a podcast. Like, is that practice? <laughs> I, I think it is. It, it's a bit of practice or, or at least just keeping a routine up of sharing our ideas. And even like the majority of the things we talk about on the show aren't things that we know. Mm -hmm. They're things that we're questioning or things that we're considering or things that we kind of want to dive into. I mean, even as a writer, like I, I don't write to share what I know. I write to figure out what I know and see if it still holds truth. Mm -hmm. So a, a lot of the show is, is that him and I kind of going through what we think about things and seeing if the other can kind of pick it apart a little bit. That's an interesting method for that. That's great. <laughs> I think we've been uh, sort of talking around the the idea of how to build a product together for, you know, the the last number of minutes as uh, Fathom is is uh, you know, a couple of years old now. How has your your playbook or your approach to building a product changed in that time, you know, or, or what are you thinking about or, or measuring now that you weren't six months ago or a year ago? Yeah, I mean, just just by virtue of having thousands of customers now, we have more people to listen to. And the, the data set of the number of customers is now getting more statistically relevant, where in the beginning, if we only had 10 customers, their opinions obviously matter, but it's hard to judge if somebody says they think one thing would be a good feature or a good idea or something that we could change, it's hard to judge. Is that what everybody wants or is that what this person wants? And their vision for that is an outlier. Whereas now we can look at, okay, if we're getting, if we're supporting thousands of customers, we can look for patterns and trends. And it's funny because that's kind of the point of our software where individual data points aren't as statistically relevant as data in aggregate, hmm. which is basically the premise of Fathom and why we show stats for like top content and top refers instead of by, by visitor. And so now we're kind of using that methodology for how we move forward in the business where we can look at trends in support and we we're, we use a lot of tags in our, <laughs> in our support queue for 
organizing information and we can then use that to see okay if half the people are saying that they they need an automated version of say data export which we had but it didn't work as well as we thought it could and people were asking for this on a routine basis and it's like okay this is the thing we need to build like right right now this is the thing we need to build and so it it's become easier as we've kind of got a bit of scale with our customer base where we can see okay we we can now see trends instead of just okay this is one person asking for one thing we can if one person asks for one thing we can say okay that's that's valid we understand now let's see if more people ask for this thing and then we also tie that into being a bit we don't mind being a bit leading in the way that we build our software. Like if somebody, if a bunch of people are asking for a feature that say invades the privacy of personal data, we're not going to build it. We're just going to be like, Mm -hmm. no, (laughs) if you want to keep using our software, you use it based on these premises. And if you don't, then there are definitely other options. So we kind of weigh the data with a bit of a grain of salt, but does this make sense? Is this something that lines up with our mission? Is this something that we want to, is this something that we're going to be happy to, to build and support for years to come? It's like if a band writes a song that they hate, and that's definitely going to be the song that's the hit. And then yeah. we're playing that song, like, I don't know if the Eagles like Hotel California, but Jesus, they have, they have to play that every single time they, they play a show, if people ever play shows again. <laughs> Sad. <laughs> Uh, um, so you're, you're talking a lot about the features or how features kind of come to light within the or, or within your team and how much of the decision making about what comes next is a is a matter of just kind of getting analytics table stakes into the product just be, you know, because you're a fairly young company uh, within the grand scheme of things versus reacting to customer feedback or really or really trying to introduce elements that reinforce your spin of privacy and simplicity in the analytics world. I think it's all of the above. I think we're not data driven as as much as we're data informed. Mm-hmm. So we'll look at things like like you said and the analytics and the the customer support and we'll take that into account and weigh that pretty heavily. But we still, at the end of the day, want to make decisions that we think, because a customer's view could be obviously very valid, but it's very zoomed in to what they specifically need in their specific circumstances for their specific metrics of, of what they need our software to do. And we try to accommodate that, of course, but we also need to zoom far out and think, okay, we have all of these customers and they all have different needs what can we do to line up those needs with the type of business we run or want to run and the the type of ethics we have for what the software will and won't ever do mm-hmm. and so it's it's like a juggling act where we have a, a bunch of different balls in the air and they they all have some weight but at the end of the day is is Jack and I basically debating with each other okay does this make sense how could we defend this it's, it's very socratic <laughs> in the way that we approach um building this company and building this software where we really try to poke holes in as much as possible internally first and then anything that makes it out of that is something that we feel pretty strongly about you've you've mentioned that the product had a really strong focus from the get-go in terms of things that you wanted to build and and things you wanted to see in the product how tied are you to that that current instantiation or that current mission you know if you discovered some some wild new customer need tomorrow do you think you would you know possibly pivot to meet that or are you really you know you're you're on a mission uh yes and no i mean i think that we are only tied to the truth as we know it because it's been battle tested. If it no longer serves us or fails us in any way whatsoever, we will be pretty ruthless about dropping it for something better. In terms of things like, is this the best way to collect privacy focused data? The way we have right now, we think is pretty good and it's become almost like an industry standard for other companies that do similar to us but if we were able to come up with a better method tomorrow then we would be we would drop it and, and move in that direction where where we won't budge on things like that is the is the the idea that people's privacy and and personal data and and demographic information shouldn't be collected in website analytics and so I, there'd be nothing and that's more of i guess a, the, the moral stance on the software is not 
not going to change, but the technology and the way in which we put those morals into functioning software, if anything better ever comes up, then we're happy to, to be publicly and very wrong about <laughs> it and then quickly move in a direction that makes it right again. Like, I don't care about maintaining the truth. I care about fact checking against it and then going in the direction that makes the most sense. So on that point, how do you do your due diligence when you are thinking about a new feature in terms of whether it upholds that that vision for privacy? Because I guess privacy at, at some level is a fairly subjective thing. It's not like sure. if you track this data point, it's private and this one, it's not private. So... How do you how do you kind of uh, measure, I guess, measure a feature or a solution against your own view of privacy and, and then that of your customers? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it is looking at um, privacy laws that exist and that's it, good. And I'm, I'm glad that there are things. And we even signed um, an amendment to CPPA, the, the California customer privacy law, because we felt so strongly about it. And we felt that it should be even stronger. Yeah. So we signed a document that was sent to the, the government to amend it to be better. And so we look at privacy laws and, and, and try to interpret them as best we can. And I say interpret them as best we can because they're still very new. And what a lot of people don't realize is that law is a little more fluid than people think in so much as it needs a lot of case law to be grounded in like basically a Boolean operator of this is against the law or this is not against the law. It does need case law and there just isn't a ton of case law yet mm -hmm. um, to determine that. So we've looked at all of these privacy laws. We've looked at okay, how does this work? And even something like a cookie law, you could say, oh, we're cookie free. So we we fit that law of cookies not tracking. But you could track through something like local storage or some other nerdy thing that Jack could probably talk to you better than <laughs> I could. And it doesn't really uphold the intent of that law to not store that information. It circumvents it. So for everything that we do, we try to maintain the intent of those privacy laws because we agree with them and we think they're valid and we think that people's data should be protected from big companies and big tech and, and advertised and all of that. So when we look at building new features, we think, does this still uphold the, the intent of the privacy laws that exist outside of there being a tremendous amount of case law? And so if it does that, that's good. We also look at does this add complexity to our software? And if it does, how can we decrease that? And if we can't, is this a feature that we want to have? So it kind of goes through a, a bunch of different things and a bunch of different lenses in order to make it. But a, a lot of it starts with that. A lot of it starts with, okay, if, if we are intent on not storing any personal data about people and maintaining laws like GDPR and CPPA, then we need to ensure that we do that <laughs> at all times. Yeah. Otherwise, that would be a nightmare. I, I know with something like GDPR, there is, there's like a specific mandate for most companies to, to abide by that. So is that like a feature per se or a requirement that customers are evaluating against? Or is it really just that those laws represent the best baseline for kind of privacy best practices? It's both. So I, it, they do represent kind of a baseline for best practices, but from a, a very, I guess, pragmatic standpoint, um, if you don't collect any personal data on your website through analytics, then you don't have to have a, a cookie notice for them. Mm -hmm. So you cannot show those annoying cookie notices. Sure. And we do get customers who are like, <laughs> I, privacy, whatever. I, if I don't have to have a cookie notice on my site, because the only thing I track are analytics and your analytics don't collect personal data. Therefore, I don't have to have a cookie notice. Sold. Done. That is the that is the strongest <laughs> strongest argument you can make for for Fathom right there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Clean up the garbage on the internet. Yes. On a, on a more tactical level, when when you and Jack are working on a feature, how do you set a bar for yourself for when something is is done or when it's ready to ship? Um, mostly, it has to go through our our process of like how can this be simpler and how can this be easier. And if we no longer have answers to those questions or those queries about the feature, then we will tr pro typically try to, I guess, beta test it with a couple of our 
like super users, I guess, the people who are the, the most keen and have varying levels of technical expertise. So we test against a few different things. But yeah, a lot of the time it's just it's just that is when we've run out of ways to make it easier and simpler, we're done. And that usually takes a, a couple iterations at least. That's it's interesting because it's I imagine there's some impetus, especially being a small team, to to get things out the door. But it sounds like you're very considerate about when it's ready or when it's ready for prime time. Yeah, there's always a, a balance of we're not going to launch when it's perfect because it's never going to happen. And therefore, we're never going to launch anything. And we don't want to ship something that's garbage. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's that that middle ground of okay, if we can't find anything else um, to change or, or to fix or to make it better, then heck yeah, L let's put this out there. And then if we need to to fix it quickly after that, then that's what we're going to have to do. When you do push things out, I guess, for, for your public releases, um, how, do you, how do you manage that type of feedback or the feedback that comes in and around new features versus your regular day-to-day -day feedback? Yeah, I mean, we typically soft launch something and then people find it for the first couple of days. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then or we ask uh, like a handful of customers to, hey, we're releasing this thing. And if you go to your dashboard, you can click here and see it. And it's not hidden to anybody else. But the likelihood of them logging in and seeing it is not as high as us sending an email to thousands of people <laughs> and saying, hey, this new feature is ready. So Go look now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So we wait a little bit. And it's hard, too, because we get excited because we're super stoked on our product. We use our product every day. Like, it's something that we're super passionate about. So when we finish something and push that code live, we're, we're, we really want to just promote it. And so we have to sit on our hands for at least a couple of days usually to, to make sure that the first round of people who are eager to use it have had a chance to and make sure that everything is stress tested um, and then send out the email and write the blog post and, and tweet about it and all of that. So it, it's a bit slower than we would like, but I don't see any way. I don't see. <laughs> I don't see any way around that. So when you have pushed out a new feature, or just you know, in in the day to day existence of of uh, Fathom, what kind of metrics or KPIs are you looking at, and and how many of those are unique to working in analytics, not just to building a software product, or shaped by your own goals for the product? Yeah, I mean, some of it is we look at our own stats and we see did this feature. Did this blog post about the feature um, get some traffic? Did the support document for this feature get a lot of traffic? Is this something we are getting um, a lot or a little bit of support? Are we seeing, like when we launched custom domains, we were looking, okay, how many people are adding custom domains on the first day that we publicly launched it? Mm -hmm. And so what's the uptake of this? What's the uptake of the new script that we have? And so we do look at those sorts of things and they do kind of help, but a lot of it, like, we pay attention, like we spend, Jack spends more time on the Use Fathom Twitter account than I do. And we just look at people's reactions or, or, or that sort of thing to the, to the things that we're building. And we know, at least at this point, um, a lot of our, I guess, super users and super keen users are people that interact with us a lot on social media. And we can kind of judge from them how much they're enjoying a new feature or what they don't like about a new feature or that sort of thing. I see a lot of tweets right now about dark mode. So it's mm. probably something <laughs> that i got to build into the, I personally don't care about dark mode, but because um, more and more customers are starting to ask about it, I'm like, okay, I guess that's a feature that, uh, that, that we should have. But yeah, like we just, we just kind of lit. And this is how I've run my business for 20 years is I just kind of listen to what people are saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not, it's not as analytical as it could be. A lot of it is just gut based on how I'm perceiving the response to things, but it works um, for us at least right now. So that's kind of the way that we're going. The irony of a qualitatively driven, quantitative <laughs> data company. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but I, I guess that's one of your unique advantages, and and you talk about this on the podcast about the the importance of having an audience. But you really have a community where you can collect that qualitative feedback from people. You're able to get it. People are willing to give it to you. I guess you know. I, I, I'm sure 
a lot of products don't have that, don't have that community aspect. And so it makes it so much harder. So it seems like that's just kind of one of the benefits of you building a product on the back of your existing audience that you've built through all of your other projects. Yeah, I don't know how to build a company another way. Like I don't, yeah. I don't know how to build a product and then find an audience for it. Mm -hmm. I know how to build an audience and a community and people who are paying attention and then just make stuff that they want. <laughs> like, I, I know that you can do it the other way. I just don't know how because I've never done it that way. Mm -hmm. On a recent episode of uh, your podcast about Fathom, you mentioned that you recently hit uh, 10K monthly recurring revenue. Uh, and that was, that was an important milestone. I'm interested as to why. Like, why, why that milestone versus something else? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, it's a bump from four to five figures, which feels somehow significant. It's like $999,000 feels a lot less than a million dollars. It's just one of those weird human psychological psychological things where it just feels like, wow, this is definitely some pretty amazing validation to to have hit that. And then to, to not just hit that, but see that how growth changed when we did hit that and feels like it feels like going from zero to a thousand dollars MRR versus like it feels like that took forever. And that was so much work. And it was. Mm -hmm. But then going from like, 10 to 11 or 11 to 12 or and onwards from there it just felt like that was a that wasn't as difficult like it's still work and it's still i think this this myth per, per pervades about software and SaaS being a passive income stream and it's like it's only a pa we're only making money while we sleep because we work on it all day when we're working <laughs> like we can take a day off and still be making money, but we still have to work full time to, to, to make it profitable and sustainable. So yeah, it was just a, it was just a milestone. And it wasn't even really a milestone that we had like, oh, we're going to, we'll, we'll have made it if we hit 10 or, or this or that. It was just more like, this feels pretty good. And like, yeah. I think initially when we, it's funny too, because when we were probably at about, I think when Jack came on board, we were at about 14 or $1,500 MRR. Mm-hmm. And we were like, what is it even going to feel like to hit 10K? Like, are we going to pop like champagne or sparkling juice for, for me? And like, what are we going to do? And then when we hit it, I don't think, I think we probably telegrammed to each other like, hey, that was, I don't remember, but like it was, that was probably it. And we were like, okay, we've got to get back to, to work on, on, on what we're doing. So we celebrated it, I guess a little bit, but it wasn't as big a, a thing as we thought because we were so just invested in okay this is this is cool but we want to make the product better <laughs> so is there well first of all i love that episode just because you guys got to spend the entire time dancing around saying any <laughs> number the entire episode despite the title of the episode having a very specific mrr to number in it. yeah so it was very humorous. Good job on that. Thank you. I didn't have to edit that much either. I was like, oh, we're just gonna we're just gonna mess up a whole bunch of times, and we didn't. You, you so showed good. fantastic restraint. Yeah. <laughs> Is the company different, kind of pre ten k versus post ten k? Like, are there different problems that you need to focus on uh, in in running the company, or like, do things just exist at a much larger scale as you know MRR kind of hits these milestones? Yeah, I mean, 10K didn't do much in terms of change for us. It wasn't until we hit a point where we could both pay ourselves the, the salaries that we needed based on the life that we had. Like, we're not driving Lamborghinis or anything like that. <laughs> we just needed to, like, when we hit the, the revenue where we could be, okay, we can work on this full time and Jack quit his job. There's an episode of above board on, on Jack quitting. I think we mm -hmm. just titled it that Jack is quitting. And then we talked about how <laughs> he's quitting his job and moving full time to fathom, not quitting fathom. So I think a bigger milestone was hitting a point where we could cover all of our expenses, maintain our margins and, and pay ourselves both like comparable salaries to the industry. And that to me was like, <laughs> we have been unleashed fully on fathom at this point jack no longer has to work three days a week on the with this client and then two or three days a week on fathom it's like this is just and and for myself as well it's like this is all we have to do and we did feel like a whole lot of momentum happened when we didn't have to basically split our time 50 50 where now i probably do like an 
maybe half a day a week on other things outside of big pushes on like the other little projects that I have. But for the most part, it's like I can work on Fathom like 80 or more percent of the time. And it just get being able to get into that headspace and stay in that headspace feels like it helps build momentum because I don't have to quit keep I'm not smart enough to switch between okay I'm doing this for fathom and then I'm doing this for something else and doing this for something else it feels like the the cognitive weight has been loaded where it's just like all I'm thinking about is fathom all Jack is thinking about is fathom the majority of the time and we can just kind of move much quicker and right now Something that you've mentioned on on Twitter is that you've you've seen uh, a handful of Fathom copycats sort of coming up on the regular. Is that something that you're concerned about, or or what is your secret sauce where you just keep pressing forward and and don't pay too much attention to that? I love competitors; they light a fire. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny; like it almost feels kind of silly to say, but like uh, we're driven to be the best product for our customers. And we're ruthless about that. And like, I don't want to win. I don't care about winning. Like, how do you win at software? Like, I don't even know. And it's funny too, because like the slice of the pie that all these simple analytics products are fighting for with us is like 1% of the market versus Google Analytics. So like, when you think about it in that way, it's like almost ridiculous. And as well, I'm, I'm pleased if somebody chooses a privacy focused analytics platform, whether or not it's Fathom over Google Analytics, I'm like, it's a win for digital privacy. It's a win in my head. But at the same time, it's like we were the first to market in this Venn diagram intersection of simplicity and privacy focused. And we want to maintain that. We want to stay the company that is the innovator as opposed to lagging behind and, and copying. And I, I truly think the way that you do that is an insane focus on on customers and existing customers and making sure they're happy making sure the value in the product is there making sure that we're able to help them when they need help and so we are driven like it drives us so hard there there's been a couple times where a competitor has launched a feature and it's just like lit a fire under our butts to be like okay how can we make an even better feature or a more valuable feature or they write a piece of content and i'm like i could i am gonna sit down and write like eight blog posts today kind of thing and so we don't spend a lot of time looking at them and it's funny too because they're all open startups and so they publish their number of customers or mrr their expenses and all of that and so we can see where they're at and it's not and i don't really mean this as shade but it's not really at the same place that we're at so I like I want them to succeed. Like I'm not a I don't I don't really believe in this winner take all version of capitalism. I think that um, economies can be collaborative. So I don't mind that they exist, and they definitely help us stay motivated to to keep Fathom being the the best product for our customers that on the market. But at the same time, we don't like we don't publish these things. And 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 I think it was Robert who mentioned we'd spend a whole episode dancing around the fact that we're not going to talk about our MRR while talking. <laughs> I don't see the value in publishing those numbers publicly by sharing what our revenue is, what our customer numbers are. I don't see the value in that for anybody but um, software voyeurs or competition, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't see how our paying customers could benefit by knowing those things. It's just like, it's cool. Like, I'm going to look at somebody's bare metrics dashboard if they make it public. Like, heck yeah, I'm going to look at that. And it's like, this Why not is juicy use it? information. It's like, yep. yeah, it's like, it's almost like gossip. But like, <laughs> I don't feel that that adds value to anything that we do, which is why we don't do that. And I think that you can still be a trustworthy company without publishing that because if it's baked into the way that you operate as a business, then like, lots of people trust us as, as a company without publishing that because we do a good job at the service that we provide. So it's just interesting to see that our, our competitors are, are publishing that. And they could change. There are a lot of businesses who have published all of their stats publicly and then, and then re reverse their position on that because it just becomes almost like, bragging or just an unneeded competitive disadvantage yeah and mm. so it's interesting to see that i don't feel like we would ever do that i my mind could be changed mm -hmm. maybe but yeah I, d I don't see that happening 
Awesome. So one last question for you while we've got you here. Fathom is privacy-focused analytics. You've talked about you know watching your customers sign ups, and you see a lot of uh, users with Proton Mail email addresses. That's a, a free encrypted email service. How much do you envision we're going to start to see the the privacy-focused version of so many of the products that we use day to day, kind of in our business, start to pop up? It's a trend. I don't know. I don't know if that trend has longevity. I mean, obviously, I hope it does. I'm putting a lot of my eggs <laughs> in yeah. that basket. But I did, just even even in the last three years, it was something that only privacy nerds talked about um, in tinfoil hat types. Mm-hmm. To now, it's like everybody knows what came. Like my parents know what Cambridge Analytica was. At least to at least to some degree, mm-hmm. they know what that is. And so it's become part of mainstream culture now where um, newspapers and publications are, are picking it up. People are talking about it. People are starting to think about, well, how is my data being used in this software that I just like log into for free? Like they're a business and they're making money. So if I'm not paying them, they're getting paid by other people. And how does that work? And what's the business model? And so I see that as something that I don't think once you're conscious or aware of something, you can then turn that off. So I, I think that that's something that's that's here to stay. I, at least I'm I'm, I'm hoping. Mm-hmm. But I just feel like that's it's it's better for the public to be more informed uh, about those sorts of things. And I feel like the things that are my data or my personal preferences are mine. And if somebody wants those, they should be able to ask for them and maybe pay me for them. But if they're just taking them without giving me an option, or if they're just mining them and selling them without even letting me know, then I feel like that's uh, that's a disservice to me as a citizen of the internet. Well, thank you for that. Quite that's, the soapbox. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the this is the platform for it. So I appreciate you giving us insight on that. Why don't we wrap it up there? Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today and talking about all this. Yeah, no, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. And for everyone listening out there, Thank you for listening. And if you're interested in starting to use or trying out Fathom Analytics on your own sites, you can check it out at usefathom.com. Framework is part of the Spec Network, a podcast network built to help designers and developers level up. You can find more shows like Framework over at spec.fm. And big thanks to Drew Looper, who edits and helps to produce this show. If you enjoyed this episode of Framework, please leave a review or rating on iTunes or recommend this podcast to a friend. And if you'd like to hear someone else's product story on Framework or to tell your own, we'd love to hear from you. So our contact details and Twitter handles are on our website, framework.is. We'll see you next time.